feel like I need to start off by saying it's Monday morning, 21st of August, because I'm doing the Dorothy Porter episode still, recording every day. But you don't care what day it is. You're just here to listen to this episode with Carolyn Williamson. I've been wanting to have Caroline on the show for so long, so, so long. I think for about a year I was emailing the wrong email address to try to set this up with her, but I figured that bit out and finally got to sit down with her and talk about her book, which is called Time Machines. I want to read you my uh, really over-earnest email that I sent her after I finished that book. Hi, Caroline. I just finished Time Machines yesterday and wanted to write to congratulate you. I knew it was going to be great, but I didn't realize how great. Being an internet-poisoned old millennial, a longer poem will sometimes scare me off, but yours had me from the start and held me all the way through. I was particularly thrilled to read La Busola. If nothing else came from sporting poets, at least we got a fantastic poem that talks directly about this sincerity question, something I sincerely care about. So... I used to run this reading called Sporting Poets. I ran it for a couple of years. I inherited it from Bonnie Cassidy and we ran it at this place called, I don't know why I said we, I ran it at this place called uh, Compass Pizza, which as Caroline's poem points out, used to be called La Busola. And I just wanted to talk to her about this one poem, mostly selfishly because it talks about the reading that I ran and I always saw Caroline sitting over in the corner and I knew she was doing something. (laughs) This poem comes out of a conversation that she had while she was at that reading and talks directly about this thing that I feel I've been circling here and in, in conversations offline with other people about Australian poetry and sincerity and the tension that exists between those two things. I've left in an incredibly embarrassing visual art misquote uh, towards the beginning there. Uh, I still feel really embarrassed about it, but there's no way to cut around it, turns out. So enjoy that one. One other thing I want to mention, because we're talking about readings a bit here, we're talking about sporting poets, and we also mentioned sick leave, which is a reading that I mention often on here because I really enjoy it. But... I, I would hate it if you got the impression that that's the only reading happening in Melbourne because it really isn't. There are so many poetry readings that happen across this city all the time. And the fact is, I'm just not very in touch with that world. So I'm afraid I make it sound like there's this one reading and then that's kind of it. Luckily, I have listeners like Ez, aka Waffle Iron Girl, who remind me of all the other stuff that's going on out there and Ez got in touch a couple of weeks ago to let me know about the Sonic Poetry Festival which is running from the 25th of August to the 10th of September. Oh my god this program there is at least one reading every day from the 25th through to the 11th. Some days like the 29th of August there's four readings going to be on And so many open mics. You could get up and read every day throughout this whole festival if you wanted to. You could get so good by the end. So I'll link to that in case you want to get up in front of the mic or just go along and listen. I'll be back at the end with a bit of follow-up from my episode about not reading Lynn Herginian. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. 
Sincerity is embarrassing. For me, anyway. I don't, I don't know about you. I, I dodge it. But one of the things that I think we didn't get at in this conversation is that that tendency, whether it's an Australian thing or it's an Alice thing, there's a hope in it that whoever's listening or reading will get that there is sincerity at the core of it. How the hell they're meant to do that, I don't know. I, I don't know. And, and why would we make it so hard for ourselves? Why would I make it so hard for myself? I don't know. Here's Caroline. I've also got these biscuits here, which I bought. And then as I was buying them, he said, just so you know, you can eat the paper on the bottom. Rice paper. Rice paper. And I thought, well, I don't want to give Caroline biscuits with paper on them. No, that's all right. <laughs> Rice paper. It's all good. Anyway. Italian, maybe. Yeah. I guess the logical place to start would be to ask you to read this great poem that I love so much. La Bussola. La Bussola. Which I didn't know that Compass had a... I mean, of course it has a history prior to having that name, but... Mm. Yeah, I just didn't realise. Well, we'd lived in that area since the 1990s. You still live there now? And we still live there now. Mm -hmm. And we used occasionally to go and have a pizza there. Um, And it was always rather smoky and full of old men. And then it got this new life. Mm. And, uh, yeah. And this poem came to me during one of those... Sporting Poets readings, wasn't that, the, that was the name, wasn't the it? The name was Sporting Poets. Sporting Poets, Poets. Yeah. and they, that was their last venue, I think, Yep. yep. before COVID and everything just washed it all away. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I was trying to hand it on before, like mm. at the end of 2019, I started to scout around and say, does anybody want this reading? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and luckily nobody took it over because they would have had a horrible time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are the readings now. Exactly, yeah. And I, I yeah. mean, I remember at the beginning of 2020, I did a reading with um, sick leave, which was quite lovely because there were all these people who looked about 18. <laughs> <laughs> and they were a really good audience. Yeah, it was lovely. It's a fabulous That was reading. just before COVID. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about this city is once one thing gets out of the way, something else can... Mm. Suddenly um, there's these young people nobody knew who were doing a really good job. A really excellent job. On their own, without any advice from us. I, w- <laughs> I won't call you an oldie, but yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's Compared totally to fine. When yeah. I go to sick leave, I also feel just a little, a little decrepit. But, yeah, I but really that's all right. It. It's all right. <laughs> Great to see the tradition carrying on. Mm. So let's, let's hear this poem. All the poems in this book are on the long side. Almost all. Almost all, but I think that it is, the nature of it is such that it will just be quite easy for people to listen to and follow. So, okay. Whenever you're ready. La Basola. Perched on a bar stool last night in La Basola, the compass. Pizza place that's been here at the scruffy end of Ligon Street for as long as I, migrant, can remember. 1991? 
Where once a group of elderly Italian men gathered in smoky conversation right here in the cavern of the side bar, which now has a stage, a sound system, a grand piano, a curtain, so we have a performance space. Where are the old men? In the cold ground of Faulkner Crematorium and Memorial Park, that's where, and we inherit their safe space, their home from home, adapted for a poetry reading. So, as I was saying, perched on a bar stool, Michael mumbled a summary of today's aesthetic creed. Against sincerity, against commitment, the structuring principle of good work is absurdity. Short pause for thought, and short was not enough. I made a show of recording his words on my phone, in among subject matter that came to mind during the reading. World War II, Crete, my father, your father. Poor Fanny Braun, who wasn't allowed to go to Rome and hold her dying lover in her strong arms. Women in World War II, knitting socks, making munitions, writing letters, raising children, in terror every time anyone knocked on the door. Rugby. Remember how it wasn't possible to play it, being female, 1960s, and I'd have been a good wing, slight but fast. That was my father too. It seems to be an evening for thinking about my father. London Irish, little bloke, school long jump record. And something about ash falling out of the sky. Bushfires, blackened fragments of leaf and twig blown right across the bay in Blairgarry, to Blairgarry, black high tide mark on white sand. None of these are absurd, but subject matter would not, I think, define the absurdity or otherwise of a poem. My Crete poem sits there in its first draft, pencil, prose, incorrigibly sincere with a worrying streak of horrors, can you believe it, nostalgia. How can I shake this off the dead hands of the romantics? Poor John Keats, his living hand and the grave waiting in the wings. Hanging around my neck, my cultural baggage. I want to be disinherited and rise up like a bubble into this weirdly clear blue city sky. And that would be so hard. Take clothes pegs, for example. I think I could write a poem about clothes pegs and it would still be tainted with the I, I, I of iambic pentameter political authenticity. How we are losing clothes pegs whenever the dog raids their basket and removes one to crunch on the lawn. And how the times we've one, how the ones we've got, plastic but solid and durable, except read the dog, cannot be found anymore in the supermarkets of this world, which offer only a brittle substitute. Brightly coloured and the correct shape, a simulacrum of the real thing that cracks in the first weeks of use, reduced to the bare minimum required to make a sale. See... I can feel a spasm of political commitment rising unstoppably from somewhere in my mind and all we were talking about was clothes pegs. Also, a poem, heartfelt, about how good it is on an autumn morning 
to be hanging out clothes in the sunny black backyard of a house of which I am temporarily an owner. What's next? Demolition and three cramped townhouses? Six-storey block of tiny apartments some way down the track when building standards are altered to cater for the hundreds of thousands of refugees from Albert Park and St Kilda, whose former homes are ten feet deep in the rising waters of Port Phillip Bay. Enjoy the sunshine while you can, and the soft earth beneath your feet. Absurdity, the simplest and the most impossible thing. Thanks. Finally got your voice mm-hmm. on tape. I'm so excited. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, so you were just saying before that, and there's a line in there that sort of talks about it, hanging around my neck, my cultural baggage. You're saying that people treat you differently because of your accent. Well, that wasn't the only thing. No, I mean, right. I think it was this feeling of um, writing poetry, always trying to push the limits and discovering that my limits are maybe the limits of my generation or my national origins. And, you know, listening, say, to Michael Farrell, who I, whose words I used in this poem, read some completely bizarre sequence of thought bubbles with no obvious connecting point, and it's completely brilliant. And I would love to be able to do that. I'm still working on it. Though I've noticed that Michael's latest poems are a bit closer to ground level. But what he, what he sometimes does is astonishing. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna come to that too to the Michael in the poem and he was okay about me quoting him. <laughs> no, it's yeah, I'm sure he's heard me read it. He sat there and laughed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll come to that, but I want to start at the start. Are you at all interested? Or have any affection for the Australian artist John Olson? I know his work. Yeah. So he has this, his work is very made up of really bright colours, a lot of, the work I'm thinking of anyways, a lot of circles and a lot of squiggly Mm. lines that kind of start Mm. in one place and Mm. then move outward and around the, the canvas and the way he describes painting is he says I'm taking the line for a walk that's Paul Clay's work ah okay I'm gonna start that question again Um, (laughs) that's all right no you don't have to start it again he was quoting Paul Clay like I was quoting Michael yeah yeah okay Mm -hmm. Uh, well mm, okay no I'm totally thrown now (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry, I didn't mean to be picky That's why I wanted to interview you because you knew I'd be picky. I knew you'd be picky, and I want, I want that. <laughs> I'm so red. Oh my god! I actually, I actually, I like John Olson's paintings individually, and he was just projected onto the Opera House. Oh, was he? Wasn't he? Am I thinking of the? No, same? he was. He was, was. But was that just recently? Just recently. Okay. Yeah. And I happened to be in Sydney launching this book. Oh. And lucky. I was staying at the YHA, which overlooks the Opera House, and I saw these incredible oh. projections. Was it solidified? But what I found with with Olsen's work is, I like the individual paintings, but if you get a whole exhibition, I start getting tired of them. Yeah, fair. Because it's all pretty much the same thing, is it? I think it's repetitious, mm. and. I don't know, it's not really a critique. It's just that some people's work, 
you can put it all together and you get a broadening and a widening sense of what they're doing. And I didn't get that from his work. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. And really, I think it's, it's Salute to Five Bells and like that other one, the Sun one. They're pretty much the only ones that I know <laughs> that I really like. But I like those. Mm. And I liked, I liked that phrase, taking the line for a walk. And yeah. when I was reading your... Um, all these poems it kept coming to me because you can do this thing and I wonder which other poets have if any maybe it's just something you just do naturally um, have helped you to kind of develop that I just can't do this I cannot do this well I can't do lots of other things that I want to do we all have to you have to do what you're good at but you also need to push it and try. I think Frank O'Hara was a bit really important for me. Mm -hmm. Like I found him relatively late on mm -hmm. in life. I wish I'd read him a lot earlier. And he has this glorious way of packing a whole sequence of observations and thoughts into a rel sometimes relatively short poem and ending up in emotionally a completely different place to where he started. Yeah. Yeah, we could pretty much we could pull down the yeah. and yeah. read pretty much any of them and they would all kind of do yeah. that. Yeah. But I think it takes a confidence to just follow the train of thought. And I, I got to speak to Ken Bolton the other month and he can do this too and Pam mm. Brown can do it as well. Um, just to follow the thought, the line, mm. where it goes and not second guess and there was a poem that you brought to Jerry Burroughs house mm. whenever we last met up there and you read it out and you said oh that was this morning and it could have easily been in this book and I was so mad at you <laughs> which one was that that's what one of the bloke poems because I've been writing bloke poems bloke from poem. way back oh god I can't remember now hang on what did I read expats there yeah, it might have been that one actually. Yeah. Yeah. But you said you'd just written it in you'd just written it that morning. Yeah. And it, it sounded so complete. What know? I'm finding, it's funny because as a younger poet, I used to have a huge battle to to get to write a poem and I knew what I had to do. I had to put a certain amount of time. It would take me about four days to get writing. I would be having to sort of walk all around the area that I thought I was going to be writing about and thinking about it fairly consistently and couldn't really do much else apart from go to work and feed myself and stuff. Mm. And then if I was lucky, at the end of about four days, I would have the poem, but not always. Whereas now, um, I've developed a practice of writing every day before breakfast and not worrying too much about whether it's a poem or not. And some of them are poems and some of them are definitely not. But the, the point is to cover the paper. Mm -hmm. And for quite a long time, they were all cover one page. Now when they get shorter or longer, I think there's something really getting underway because it finishes halfway down the page or it goes over and completes a second page or whatever. So the routine's being disrupted by the needs of whatever's going on to the paper. And this is quite new for me. This is after the first year of lockdown, 2020. 
and um, I realised I'd hardly written anything. I mean, there's one poem in here that I wrote in that year. Is that the dog park? No, oh, it's um, um, there's one about lockdown. Staying home. Staying home, yeah. that's it. Everyone was writing poems like that. But yours is really good. Well, thank you. But I didn't <laughs> feel it was one of my best. But um, I got to the end of that year and I said to my partner, I've had enough of this, I'm going to write before breakfast. Fortunately, he tends to get up quite a long time before I do. So I own the bedroom before breakfast. And I use that to write something mm. vaguely, possibly poetic, possibly not. And I also try and make notes about the previous day because my sense of time has been completely disrupted. And I don't think I'm the only one in terms of um, the lockdowns, what happened yesterday, what happened last week, what happened last year. And it's reassuring to have that, those notes on what happened on mm. a particular day. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that's been pretty consistent since the beginning of 2020, so I've got hundreds of them. You, so you just decided one day, I'm going to write before breakfast, and then you actually did that? I actually did. <laughs> it's not like me. I'm a serial but breaker of New Year's resolutions, so no, it's just, this is exceptional. I'm wondering if you reached a point of urgency. Like, what was the difference? You'd been writing poetry for a long time. Mm. This is your first collection. Yeah. Um, though a lot of this has been written quite a bit earlier. Okay. But um, partly there was the desperation of having spent most of 2020 hardly writing at all, in spite of having all this time, you know. Like, we should all have been churning things out, you know, in our, at our desks. But some of us were and some of us weren't. I want to meet the people who were. Mm? I don't think they exist. Don't you? No. Well, I just decided at the beginning of 2020 that I just had to write something. And then, like a little gift, we had the kind of, you know, January the 6th. And, like, just as I was starting... There was all this kind of turmoil going on in the world beyond COVID, um, which is where I got some of the first poem in the book, which is a, a set of five from five before breakfast sessions. <laughs> the first word in the book is bossy. Yes, I was proud of that. <laughs> bossy, only believe, says the weight loss program without evidence, though you do have to listen if you want results. The body has its own concerns, spine aching first thing, and a quick way in confirms a problem continuing. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've probably all been there. <laughs> okay, I'm going to come back to La Busola because I think it's a good... It, it, I was going to use it as like an anchor, like an organising <clears throat> kind of force to talk to you. So tell us more about this Michael in the poem. Well, this is Michael Farrell, and I used his name with permission. Um, this is a good practice that I need to get into. What? Using people's names with permission. Well, I use, tend to use them without mm -hmm. permission. I use them without permission. Do you? Well, <laughs> I actually changed his name. I sent this off, I think, to the Newcastle Prize, yeah. with, and I changed his name because mm -hmm. of you know the prize rules about not identifying oneself in any way I thought I'd better change everyone else's name as well okay and I changed Michael's name and then 
asked his permission when it got in when it got into the prize anthology, which is my favourite prize, the Newcastle Prize, because you know you I've never actually won or been highly commended, but they have thirty thirty odd poets in each year on the kind of long list. It's and kind you of get, nice that, yeah. You get into their book yeah. and it's just a good place to be. Mm. So anyway, I asked his permission and showed him the poem and he was fine about it. So, yeah, and I'm not arguing with him. I'm exploring the possibilities. Like, I don't think, I probably don't have a poem in me of the kind that he writes you know, which skips around with language and emotion and pays no attention to sequence or, I mean, just astonishing things. That, that is definitely, that's a really great description of Michael's work, but that's not specifically what he's was talking about. No. Here he's talking about today's aesthetic creed against sincerity, against commitment, the structuring principle of good work is absurdity. I think he was being a little bit provocative. Totally. And he was not necessarily enjoying the whole of that reading. That, <laughs> that was the feeling. What do you mean? He, he was Every in... single sporting poet was a transcendent <laughs> experience. Well, we're all different and some of us have stronger <laughs> views than others. And I can't actually remember who the poets were, though they might recognise themselves because I've, I've said some of what they're writing about. And... Um, Michael and I were just sitting on the sidelines and I think he was expressing his views. This is a long time ago. Which yeah. I think, I think we're, we're more than safe. Um, today's aesthetic creed, against sincerity, against commitment, the structuring principle of good work is absurdity. So that could almost be talking about anyone. I mean, that's something that, that we see a lot in Melbourne, I think. Is that fair to say? A lot in... A lot in Melbourne. In Melbourne. Or maybe it's an well, Australian I found, thing. Well, I found this, you know, as a, I, I spent quite a lot of time hanging out with poets about at least a generation younger than me. And I've massively appreciated, you know, the kind of sense of community and friendship. But at the same time, there's this feeling of people's work being very different and of um, that absurdity or the sense of language as a subject in itself. And that is beyond me in some ways. I can work hard and get what a poet is getting at, but it doesn't come easy. Whereas with some of the much younger ones, like, you know, kind of Gareth Morgan and Harry Reid, I go, yep, I get that. Mm. So it's kind of, there's, a, there's the wheels turning in some ways. Back to sincerity? Not to sincerity necessarily. Or a straightforwardness maybe? A kind of straightforwardness, um, a kind of everydayness. Like mm. to be able to write a whole book about the hassles of having to go to work is pretty impressive. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really, I really want to unpack this properly because I think it is just so... This thing of like against sincerity, against commitment... I think is something that people notice and it doesn't have to be in Melbourne it could be it could be anywhere I'm sure it happens like in London and like mm -hmm. wherever the hell else like people feel that in poetry and I think it really annoys them I think it's like a really irritating 
thing. What, um, the absurdity and the lack of commitment. The lack of commitment. But I think... But it cuts you loose. It cuts yeah. you loose from so much in tradition. It produces a different kind of work. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not either attacking or defending it. I'm saying it's out there. Mm. And I really... Um, I feel I've been extended myself by being in Australia in a way that I wouldn't have been extended in the UK. Right. And I don't want to generalise because I'm not enough in touch now with English or British poetry, but there does seem to be a sort of small c conservatism over there. I think you're right. Well, Not so yeah. much in the United States. I think we are a little bit more American than we are English as poets over here. Yeah, I think that's, that's really fair. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what you find in New York. Yeah, I'm... I have no idea. I feel like the this I feel like there might be a level of conservatism that I'm not at all prepared for. Like a and when I say conservative conservatism I mean like like people be, being very proper and very careful. That's kind of what I'm expecting. I'm not expecting against sincerity I'm expecting deep sincerity (laughs) (laughs) and strong commitment and absurdity being like almost like politically um banned like not allowed you know well maybe yeah maybe but I don't know it would depend who you were talking to yeah but I'm I'm definitely expecting to go to stuff where like because you know you mentioned January 6th you can mention anything Mm. that's happened in the US over the last I don't know, not decade, but well, almost. Well, democracy is fighting for its life, really. It, it looks that way. Yeah. I don't know. You guys are listening. Matt, Matthew, Elijah, tell me. Tell me, <laughs> <laughs> tell me it's fine. I don't think it's fine. I don't think it's fine. Um, anyway, oh, I'm getting massively off track. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, what I was going to say was that that small c conservatism in in British poetry is really interesting to me too. Got to spend some time there and go to readings over there and noticed the really the the way that people say it in a positive way is our oh, poetry's everywhere. It's you know it's living and breathing and in mm. in British mm. culture and it's true. People would write poems and get up at open mics and perform them and they would be, you know, casually referencing Edelstrop mm. and everybody in the room would be like, ah, oh, yes, yeah. I understand who you're talking That's about. That's a bit ancient, isn't it? I thought that was my generation. You mean the young read Edelstrop? Well, I think it did it in high school. I think it was, I mean, there was a whole bunch of different kinds of, of readers, but there was definitely a sense of... Um, the, Philip, co- the Philip, cultural baggage. Philip Larkin. Yeah, Philip Larkin. Yeah. That this that there was a that there's a tradition that started way back when and continue and it's like the unbroken line to now. Mm. And what I think is really fascinating is you have come from that poetic culture and then also kind of had to deal with us 
and all our mm. weirdness and absurdity and our total unwillingness to ever be serious. <laughs> I wonder if that's like <laughs> well, super I, annoying. No, it's not. It's not at all. I mean, I suppose I experience my own politics as a kind of individual quirk in some ways because mm. you know I've spent a lot of my life as. I mean, I can't call myself an activist now, but politics has always been quite central to me along, alongside poetry, and they've always been in some tension with each other, but I can't neglect one. Well, I'd say I'm now neglecting politics for poetry, partly because um, I have less energy and this arthritis I'm living with is difficult, makes it difficult to get out sometimes. But... Um, also, there's this feeling that I haven't had the balance quite right in my life and that I had, like certainly in the 1980s, my poetry was beginning to go really quite well. Mm. And I went off and took myself a job with a campaign for nuclear disarmament, didn't I? Underpaid, overworked, four years, and it just wiped the writing out of my life almost entirely. Mm. Um, so when I came here, about 18 months after leaving CND, I thought, right, I'm going to put poetry first for a while, and found this wonderful culture here. You know, there was a writer's centre. I think I said to you, you know, Judith Rodriguez was doing, did an astonishing class. Um, Tom Shapcott did a class where he said things to me that I'm still thinking about. Oh, like you know? what, like what? Well, I read, I wrote, there's a poem in the book called Murphy Tidville mm. about my grandfather. And he said, this is a poem of retrieval. Now you need to write a poem of letting go. And I thought, wow, how do I do that? <laughs> still and thinking. Still thinking about it, yeah. Do you feel it's changed, the, the poetic culture, or is it? Is it more or less just different? What, over here, the last, in, of the time I've been here? Yeah, here in Melbourne. I don't know. I mean, I, I used, to, when I arrived here, I knew I had to find people. I used to go to the Melbourne Poets. Then I found a wonderful um, women's poetry group organised by Catherine Bateson and Kristin Henry. And that was great for a while. So, you know, life just carries on. It doesn't stop. I had a fairly intense engagement with poetry, I suppose, for the first five or six years that I was here. I remember thinking to myself, once I've got a poem in me engine, I will put a book together. Still, it takes a lot to get into me engine. <laughs> I got it in. I can't even remember which one it was now. Uh, isn't that funny, though? Because you probably, you would have sweat blood over it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did. Um, put up with a lot of rejection. Yeah. Yeah. Coming back to this poem, I love this bit where you say, incorrigibly sincere, with a worrying streak of horrors, can you believe it, nostalgia. How do you, but how do you resist nostalgia? I think if you're a British poet, you don't. And, well, I, again, every generalisation, you immediately start thinking of wonderful British poets who, yeah. who don't do that kind of thing but there is that I did feel coming here that I was breaking away from tradition in some ways mm. and that the air was fresher 
You know, there wasn't that sense of people looking over your shoulders. Yeah. And it's not that there aren't, there isn't a tradition here. It's that each generation seems not to feel quite so constrained by their predecessors. Well, that's, oh, that's super interesting though, because I've been kind of on this journey back through time, sort of trying to research, sort of started with finally figuring, figuring out who Forbes was mm. and then trying to understand properly the quote unquote generation of 68 and just recently read this Harwood biography and then understanding all her kind of contemporaries. I'm looking forward to that one. It's really good. Oh, yeah. I just finished it though the other night and it, the end is, I mean, this is the thing with biographies is the end is always quite sad. But in this case, the end is infuriating. To, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't spoil it for me. No, I won't spoil it for you. But, um... but I heard Gwen Harwood read once, I think, and she was astonishing. I bet. I bet she was really You know? Good. Yeah. Like, she must have been in her 60s or 70s, very quietly dressed, got up there, and she read a poem among... One of the ones she read was a poem about how as a teenager she had tried to get her music that she'd written in front of a visiting composer. Oh, yeah. And all he wanted to do was get her into bed. Yep. And she finished reading this poem with a huge grin on her face saying, so I took my lovely body away because he didn't want my mind. And the whole place erupted. It wow. was fabulous. Oh, my God. Is yeah. that the last line of the poem? Or is yeah. That something? Oh, my God. Well, that's as, as I remember. I don't think I've ever seen it in writing. I just thought, wow, this woman is something else. Yeah, no, she was... She read that very sad one about being in the park with a couple of kids yeah. and the bloke walking past and patronising her. Mm. And I, that was more within what I would have expected. Mm. But that teenage memory was fabulous. Yeah. Oh, you're going to love this book then. Yeah. Um, but coming back to the people looking over your shoulder thing, the generations thing, mm -hmm. I have been thinking, and this is probably just me generalizing from my own experience, but I've been thinking about how we sort of, as Australian poets, we sort of don't know our own history very well. Um, mm -hmm. And that, comes from a lot of things including constantly looking overseas but also our history is really really uncomfortable mm. um, and I think it's easier to just hand wave it away but I don't know I found I found for me that like actually figuring out who these people were and what their connections were like and what their work was mm. like has been kind of almost like kind of healing <laughs> <laughs> to use a big word. So are you talking about Gwen Harwood's generation or earlier or? Her generation and then the generations after her, up mm. to and including like poets who were writing in the 90s, you know, mm. um, which is basically my generation. But yeah, mm. yeah. But I, I think you're right too that there is, I mean, there were people like A.D. Hope or whatever who were sort of mm. like trying to pull the, British tradition over here and say we have to do it like this and yeah but it just never it didn't really take um so yeah that when you say the air is fresher like hmm. I totally I know what you mean yeah that line too I want to be disinherited 
and rise up like a bubble into this weirdly clear blue city sky. And then the political starts to come in. Iambic pentameter, political authenticity. Do you feel like that's a bad thing? Because, you know, as you mentioned, you were mm. you were an activist. Yeah. Um, in like the sense of, I mean, I think of you as like tying yourself to trees and tractors and things like that. Do I well, have that Well, right? I never tied myself to anything, but I did try to get in the way of a cruise missile convoy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so for I about think that two seconds. <laughs> I think that counts as like as real activism. So when you say, I think I could write a poem about clothes pegs and it would still be tainted with the I, I, I of iambic pentameter political authenticity. When I read that, I think, um, is that something that Caroline's trying to get away from? And if so, why? I wouldn't say I was trying... The, I think that sense of a fixed um, self-righteous self, definitely. Oh, self-righteous self. Okay. Yeah. That like knows and, things. And, and yeah, that knows things and mm. disapproves of things. And um, oh, Okay. But not, but, but also it's like sitting there with all these poets reading their work. And on that particular evening, I was thinking, why haven't I written a poem like this and kind of, writing it down and thinking I've got to do my own version, my own my own completely different version. And also, you know, Michael making these provocative remarks about absurdity, mm. aimed, I think, probably at the people who'd been reading rather than at anyone sitting around the table with him. It's so satisfying. I mean, as we know, as we've said, every every month of Sporting Poets was a transcendent moment and every 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 one of those afternoons was perfect. But the thing about a bad reading is it can really spur some good poems. <laughs> I don't think it was a bad reading. I oh, think no, no, it, no. Was, it was a contentious reading oh, okay. for some of the audience. That's interesting. Right? I wish I could remember. I wish because, I could figure out which one it was. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. No, they weren't uh, bad poets. They weren't terrible poets. They were poets writing in ways that were not part of the dominant paradigm in Melbourne, I think, ah. probably. Okay. If I could remember who they were. But yeah, I guess no matter who, regardless of that, it's like, that's the value of getting yourself. Because going to a reading, I don't know, at least for me, sometimes I'm like, yes, but there are a hundred other things I need to do or, or could be doing. Mm. But then when you actually do it and you go there, invariably you come away with something that you yourself want to do, either mm. because you've been inspired or you've been like riled because you're yeah. just like, yeah. what? That was so annoying. You can't do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I won't, I won't name the poet, but the last reader who ever read at Sporting Poets pissed everybody off. <laughs> wow. Was I at that one? I have to check. Whoa. And it was... When did Sporting Poets end? Uh, probably the last one was in like October 2019 or something like mm. that. And yeah, it was um, kind of catastrophic. Like, it was just, it was the last reading of the last afternoon that I was running. And yeah, put this person up and um, just everyone was offended. Mm. And everybody kind of went out the front and started smoking. And I was like, 
Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that's, life, that's life performances for you. That's right. You can't like, control these things. They kind of slunk away. Thanks, everyone, for a great couple years. Um, see yeah. you, see you, never. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't control it either as, as the, the organiser and MC. You just... You don't know necessarily what people are going to do mm-hmm. ahead of time, and yeah. Um, but I actually think that that's great, something like that happening, because then people go away and talk about it. And you have to think about why. I mean, that's the other thing in this poem overall that I think is so great. It's like it's you are being prompted to th- figure out what do you actually think about sincerity, mm. what do you actually think about absurdity. Yeah, yeah, mm. and also. Like thinking, well, that person wrote about Crete and, the, you know, and why haven't I written a poem about, which I still haven't. I've got a first draft buried somewhere, but I have not written about that. Mm. And, you know, my, we used to go on holiday to Crete when we were living in London. And um, my partner's father, who's Australian, made, was made a prisoner of war on Crete and spent, was sent up to... Germany through Greece and my father was there taking the German surrender in 1945 wow. so there's this weird connection and yet I've never written about it and it's almost like the poem is already made and I don't have to you know? I totally know what you mean yeah. yeah it's like that sort of people would go oh it's such a that would be such a great poem you know yeah but you might have too much too, too many, much baggage. Yeah, too much baggage, too many preconceived ideas mm. of what that's going to look and sound like. Mm. Whereas I think you can only get this kind of wandering, following the thought wherever it goes, freshness, if you just, yeah. you actually don't know. Mm. Maybe that's part of it. I'm going to figure it out one day. <laughs> Let me know when you do. <laughs> um, yeah, the last line is absurdity, the simplest and most impossible thing. I think that's probably a personal statement. Mm. That's what I'm saying. I can't do this, Michael. I'm sorry. I'd really like to. I've tried. I can't do it. <laughs> Carry on. Carry I on. love your work. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no, there's no sense in trying to be another Michael Farrell. No, yeah. no, not at all. But the people who are producing new work around you, uh, you know, you read it and it becomes part of your current world in a way you know you need and it's not that you necessarily influence each other but their presence is there it challenges any preconceptions you may have about your own work Mm. and it tells you to let maybe let certain things go in your case can you think of specific things that um that's been true for Maybe in terms of form. I mean, I actually wrote a crown of sonnets mm. that's in here, partly because it was there and I thought, can I do this? I'd been reading, I think, Marilyn Hacker, who uses a lot of traditional form in her quite not very traditional work. I thought, I can do that. And I did it. And it felt sort of right for that subject matter. But I'm not sure... I was actually thinking again today, and it's a long time since I wrote that. I was thinking again, it might be time to attempt another one. Um, but I haven't been doing using traditional form very much. It's this rather loose um, free verse. Mm. 
had a listener ask me the other week whether I had any ideas and strategies of how to learn those tools beyond reading the manuals. Mm. Um, and I sort of said, no, not really. Like, I think you read other people's work. Yeah, you basically just have to read a lot of it and then try to mm. copy it and mm. fail and then work with other people who know how yeah. to do it. Yeah. And read your work to other people. Yeah. And um, certainly when you're starting out, I think it can be quite shocking to read your work to other people because you start seeing all the things that aren't quite there. Mm. And, uh, yes, you realise it mid-reading. Whoops. <laughs> oh, God, I didn't realise that was there. Yeah, and so we, we mentioned um, at the start the gathering at Jerry Burroughs' house, which is just reading pretty much like we just go around in a circle i'm a very very intimate member but mm. the format is that you just sit in a circle with, you read other people's work yeah, or your own or whatever your own. you want to do yeah, yeah yeah and the reading of other people's work is wonderful because you get the get to sort of feel yeah. it and yeah yeah um, embody it in that way but then when you read your own stuff it is shocking because we're often reading early drafts to each mm. other and you can feel it when it goes down like a lead balloon because <laughs> there's like 12 other people there 15 no, other people, people are there. very nice to each other yeah it's really it's really like i think supportive. it's important to be appreciative and not yeah. hypercritical yeah no nobody's critical but i mean mm. it's unavoidable mm. like you can't fake well you can fake enthusiasm i suppose but it's mm. yeah I, I don't know i think that's really valuable yeah. To kind of have those. I definitely had, I think we'd go around like three times and I think the first one I read, I was like, okay, mm. that worked. And then the mm. second one, I was like, oh, it's terrible. It's not doing anything. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Which I yeah. think is instructive. Mm. Um, more generally, and as sort of, I've somehow we've been talking for 50, 50 minutes. I have no idea how that happened. Um as a more general question, because this is your first book, a lot of people who listen are kind of newer to this or maybe on the cusp of having mm. something like this happen. Is there anything you would want to say about what it's been well, like? Well, obviously, I wish I'd got my act together earlier. It would have been nice. And I think I got to the stage in my life where I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I should try and put a book together, but, you know, I, no one's ever going to publish it. There was this sort of assumption, you know, low self-esteem, even though I was quite confident about individual poems. Um, and in my case, I was lucky that Jennifer Compton got on to me, and you cannot. If she tells you you've got to meet a deadline with a book manuscript, you just do what you're told. No one's saying no to Jennifer Compton. Absolutely. And um, so I obediently threw this together in a few weeks. She's like a secret force in Australian poetry because there are a number she, of she poets. She loves like, doing this for people. She actually loves it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's like a matchmaker. She's like yeah. poetry Cupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story multiple different times, mm. multiple times from multiple different poets who've said, I wasn't doing anything. Or I had this poem, I didn't know what to do with it. 
And then Jen said to me, well, you, of course, you must enter it in the Newcastle. And then I won the Newcastle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jen, for prompting Caroline to make this book. But, but I think the other thing is, I, I think I said to you that I heard you talking the other week about books on how to write poetry. Mm-hmm. And I had one quibble with that, which is there's a, there's a book called Writing Down the Bones. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That yeah. one. And Family I mean, I haven't, it's a long time since I read it, but yeah. at the time that I read it, I took a lot out of that book. It's a good book. Yes. And she, she said, writing poetry is like building a compost heap. There's lots of stuff that goes into it. You're just seeing things rotting away. You're writing and writing and writing. Mm. And then suddenly, bang, there's a tulip. You know, and it's perfect. Mm. And you just have to keep working. I think that's really, yeah. And yeah. for me, this process of writing every day has been, it's been right for me at this time. Mm. Um, but I, I think everybody has to find their own, their own regular way of writing, you know, going off to the library and putting your headphones on or whatever. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that was kind of what I was attempting to say um, and I probably made it sound like I was dismissing all these books that I have in the mm. other room, that, but they all meant a lot to me. Like, mm. yeah, I remember where I was reading, writing down the bones and how I felt. Um, but overall, I think what I was trying to say was they can only help you so much because you have to figure your own Absolutely. way. Like, yeah. And that kind of could be the text of every single one of those books is figure out what works for you and then do that. <laughs> and you can add to that, listen to what people say about your work, but don't necessarily take it on board. Right. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I've had people tell me that I need to make my work more poetic. And I've had somebody tell me once that I had too much colloquial language in my poems. Oh, that person had been reading, I don't know, the Columbia Dictionary of Poetry and they found a definition and apparently the definition is heightened language. Uh, oh, and I wasn't doing that. Yeah, I think about that a lot because I, I mean, yeah, I've heard that case made and it stings because <laughs> I don't use heightened language at all. Of course you don't. But it's, well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I'm an Australian poet, like, of course I don't, but also I'm me. Mm. And I just, I don't speak like that, I don't think like that. So if I did that, I would just be faking it. But I'm interested in, like, needs to be more poetic. I wonder what that meant. Who knows, who cares? It was a while ago. Hey Alice, uh, this is Dave from up in Brisbane. I've listened to your show off and on for a while, and only today, listening to your episode about literary bankruptcy, have I felt compelled to respond. It was a really good episode. <laughs> I like how you really let the seams show. I mean, I think you're always good. Every time I've listened to episodes of your show, you're very good at letting the seams show. I, I like the I like the idea that like procrastination is you know a myth or a narrative 
made up for and in the service of neoliberalism. And I agree completely. Like that, that resonates completely. But then like, it's an interesting thing to think about, like, okay, well, if we're like, if we're brought up within this framework and we're so completely acculturated to it from such a young age, then like either we can, we can work really hard to push against it and like say, okay, procrastination doesn't exist, whatever. I'll just like, I'll, I'll acknowledge that and live as if it doesn't exist. But like, I wonder if an, if an, if an equally productive approach isn't like to say, okay, well, we've been fed this lie of procrastination as a thing. So like, how do we use that for ourselves? Like, how do we make that useful for us outside of a neoliberal framework? And I think like one of the ways I, I do that all the time, I realized, is to give myself enough ways in which to procrastinate from not only the things I legitimately don't want to do, like my day job, for instance, or the dishes. Not that I don't enjoy both of those things at times, but like also from other things that I legitimately want to do. Like I'll have like, I have my to read pile, as we all do, of all the books that I've bought over the years and I'm always culling, but it's always there. And then I have, you know, all of my, all of these tabs open on my computer and on my phone of individual poems or essays or whatever that I want to read. And then I have the things I want to write that I'm actively working on. And then also I have all the books that I have out from the multiple libraries that I use. And so it's always like, you know, I think a lot of the best poems I get written, I get written in the moments when I don't want to be reading the thing I'm reading. But then I find the pleasure of reading renewed, like I'll, I'll approach a library book with such excitement because it feels like this like sort of naughty little procrastinatory pleasure. Finally, maybe that's the thing that pushes me to take a book off my to-read pile that's been there for years because, ooh, I'm procrastinating from the library books. And like, it's always this like little, little, there's this sort of friction of pleasure that comes from having enough options that I'm always choosing to do something instead of something else. And I think that's how, that's my little, that's my trick. What an absolute sweetheart. Thank you, Dave. And thanks for being so generous to let me use that when you sent it to me, not intending it to be distributed across the internet. I really, really appreciate it. I think my dream for this show is that it just becomes a call-in show. Like eventually I just become Dan Savage on the Savage Lovecast. He was really one of my, you know, my, my early podcasting heroes. And I still, I just want to be like him. So yeah, if you ever feel like doing this, just know that it absolutely makes my day. And yeah, I probably will ask to use you on the show, um, but I will edit you and you will sound, you will sound as smooth as I can possibly make you sound. So the first thing I did when I got into my office today was I, I pulled apart the reading stack and without thinking too hard about it, I just put everything that was just aspirational into the cold storage pile. And now I'm looking at it over there and there are, what do we got? There are four issues of a journal that I definitely need to sit down with one afternoon. There are two collections from people I want to read because I want to see whether I should interview them. There is a selected that I've never read. There is still Don Choi's DMZ Colony and there is still Philip Larkin's The Wits and Weddings, which is not going to take very long. Like for real, just fucking read that book, Alice. Um, it feels a lot more, it feels way better because it's just so much more realistic. 
and actually reflects uh, more of what I actually want to do rather than what I think I should do. And the cold storage pile is huge, but all the books that should be there are there. And I did the same thing at home. And yeah, I mean, I, I got just so many lovely heartfelt responses to that episode about Lynn Higinian and and that was fantastic and I'm so glad it resonated with so many people but even if I hadn't it made a huge difference to me to make that episode and put it out there so to Dave's comment here about productive procrastination I I really relate to this way of thinking this is also very much kind of how I I do things. I'm generally doing about six things at once and you know it's it's that old thing of like the way you end up doing your taxes is because you've got something even worse that you are trying to avoid, right? Like it's only Tim Ferriss weirdos that get up and they're like, all right, I'm in my cold plunge pool and then I'm eating my swordfish and then I'm doing my morning pages. Like, that's psychopathy. (laughs) That's, you know. And if you've ever, like, listened to Tim Ferriss for any period of time, like, the man's dealing with some heavy shit. Like, he's he's got really tough stuff that he's dealing with. And I kind of, as much as I hated that whole four hour work week thing, uh, and as damaging as I think it was, like in the last couple of years, he's sort of come out and been like, yeah, so that was about avoiding some really difficult stuff that happened to me. And um, yeah, I wrote this book and I got really famous and really rich off it. Yeah, it's just, he's just started to be more honest about where he's coming from. And it is, it's an avoidance tactic, that level of productivity. Wow, I'm so off topic from Dave's question. Um, productive procrastination. So what I didn't properly tease out and what I really need to basically talk to Antonia about again or or at least like work through by looking at her writing again is like she's even trying to challenge the question of of productivity as a thing like as a drive the productivity drive what is it why is it that we are so unable to just do nothing and so I think it is good to find those little cracks in the day in the week where you end up reading the library book instead of the book that you bought or the book that you bought instead of the library book the rebellion in that is I think like healthy and definitely how I run my life like I was so happy at work last Wednesday. I was sitting in this just the stupidest meeting. Like I can't even describe to you. That all all I will say is that there were it was one of those meetings where the big butcher's paper with the sticky stuff across the top is on the wall and you just you've just got to get through. Um, but while I was sitting in that meeting, I actually found the first line of a poem that I have been working on for a couple of weeks now and I was like okay worth it absolutely worth it but yeah 
the fact of always needing to be doing something, to have done something. You know, when, when you say to somebody at the end of the day, like, oh, how was your day? And they say, oh, it was really productive, actually. And that is universally a good thing. That's the thing that Antonia is trying to kind of dig under and, and question that I didn't properly manage to tease out in that episode. But anyway, that's, that's something for a future discussion. And for now, thank you, Dave, so much. And thank you to everybody who wrote in about not reading my life. I don't know if anyone really cares about scheduling issues here, but um, in case you're wondering, the next episode is going to be a couple of days late because I have to go all the way. Well, I don't have to. I'm choosing to go all the way to the end of August with Dorothy Porter. And if you want to write in or call in about the poem Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss, you still absolutely can. There's a lot going on in the episode, <laughs> but I'll fit you in. I will totally fit you in. Thank you for listening.